Our first uh, scripture reading of the morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. I'll be reading uh, from chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I invite you to follow along on the screen. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his book, When the Game is Over, it all goes back in the box. The Presbyterian pastor and author, John Ortberg, tells a story about a man named Larry Walters, a 33-year-old truck driver from Southern California. One day, Larry Walters found himself sitting in the lawn chair of his backyard, soaking in the sun, drinking a beverage, and peeking through the chain-link fence at his neighbors. And judging by what he did next, we have to believe that Larry Walters was not drinking a Diet Coke. He looked up into the sky and thought, wouldn't it be fun if I could fly in the air, hover above my neighbors, and then wave at them? And so Larry Walters went off, and he bought 45 weather balloons and tied them to his lawn chair. He strapped himself in with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a six-pack of beer, and a BB gun to shoot the balloons just in case he wanted to land at some point. And as he sat in that lawn chair, he figured that he would go up about 30 feet, which is about the height of the ceiling. Well, Larry Walters shot up way past 30 feet, past 100 feet, past 1,000 feet, all the way up to 16,000 feet, where he drifted right into the flight pattern of the Los Angeles Express Airport. As a DC-10 Continental Airline flight was approaching the airport, the pilot said over the loudspeaker, well, if you look out the window to your right, you'll see a man sitting in a lawn chair eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> the pilot then radioed air traffic control and said, you're not going to believe this, but I just have seen a man in a lawn chair up here. Well, understandably, air traffic controls was a little concerned about what the pilot said he had witnessed and told him, you are to land immediately. And for the next 45 minutes, Larry Walters floated up around the California sky while they diverted other planes to nearby airports. He finally used his BB gun to shoot some of those balloons, and along about dusk, 
he started slowly drifting back down towards the earth until his balloon cables got hung up in a power line causing a 20-minute blackout in a Long Beach neighborhood. When he landed, he was immediately arrested, and as he was being led away, a news reporter asked him, were you scared? He said, yep. They asked, would you do it again? He said, nope. Now that is a true story. But I wouldn't be surprised if some of you kind of crinkled your noses and were a bit skeptical and had your doubts. Well, would you believe that there are people who doubt the events that we are celebrating today in the Christian church? In fact, this morning, we we're going to read a scripture passage in which Jesus, in his resurrected body, enters a locked room with all the doors shut. We know it's true, and yet there was still this one man who stubbornly declared, unless I see it with my own eyes, the marks in his hands where the nails were, I will not believe it. So say hello to the guy who reigned on the very first Easter parade, Mr. Doubtfire himself, Thomas. And I would like to invite you to join me in our second scripture reading. It's from John chapter 20, and I'll be reading verses 19 through 31. Once again, I invite you to follow along on the screen. When it was evening on that first day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. And friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for Easter and for the joy and the hope and the promise that this day brings to us and your church on this Easter morning when we celebrate our Lord Jesus' resurrection. We also come face to face with the doubts that may hold us back from enjoying the life that you intend for us. We pray that you would come among us now and illuminate your word for us as we celebrate your risen son 
Help us to remember that the power that raised him also lives in us daily and that it is always available to strengthen our faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen and reigning Lord. Amen. There was a little boy who was uh, playing outside when his mother told him that it was time to come in for Easter dinner. And that little guy made a beeline for the dinner table, but his mom stopped him dead in his tracks and said, Now, Billy, you go wash your hands. And Billy balked and said, Why do I have to wash my hands? And his mother said, To get rid of the germs. And as Billy turned and headed to the bathroom, he muttered, All I ever hear in this house is germs in Jesus, germs in Jesus, germs in Jesus, and I've never seen either one. That is the problem that a lot of us have about the resurrection on Easter morning. After all, how often have we heard the word, seeing is believing? But the resurrection is about something we can't see, can't touch, can't prove. We have all this archaeology and science and technology. So we want our realities based on facts and findings and formulas. And so wouldn't it be great if God could somehow dramatically prove the resurrection so that we could show that disbelieving world out there, see, <laughs> I told you so. That's what doubting Thomas wanted. Thomas wanted dramatic, decisive proof of the resurrection. And he said, if I don't get it, then I'm not going to believe it. He says, unless I see with my eyes the marks in his hands where the nails were, unless I thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Thomas was a left-brained realist. Thomas was a pragmatist. Thomas had a degree in engineering from Penn State hanging on his wall. Thomas called a spade a spade. He said, until the results from the lab come back, proof, proof positive, you can count me out. Now, Thomas was also something of a pessimist. It was just too good for him to believe that Jesus was alive. It was too good to be true. Thomas was not optimistic that Jesus had risen. I once heard optimism described as going after Moby Dick in a rowboat and taking the tartar sauce with you. That's optimism. Well, Thomas was something of a pessimist. Now, the exact opposite of Thomas has to be Simon Peter. Because you would never catch Thomas leaping out of a boat to walk on the water in the middle of the night during a storm. You would never catch Thomas slicing off the ear of the high priest's servant in the Garden of the Gethsemane. It didn't matter that uh, Peter believed that Jesus was alive because Peter would believe anything. Thomas only believed what he could see. But you know, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says, now faith is the evidence of things not seen. And the last thing that Thomas saw was his Lord nailed to a cross on Good Friday and then placed in a borrowed tomb. Now, you may be thinking, well, John, it seems that Thomas forgot everything that Jesus ever said to him. He still won't believe that Jesus is alive even when he's staring him right in the face. Friends, it is possible to be in the presence of the risen Christ, yes, on Easter morning, without him having the slightest impact on us. As someone has said, what can you say about a society that says God is dead and Elvis is alive? So as Christians, we believe in the doctrine 
of the resurrection. We say in the Apostles' Creed, we affirm that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. But on Easter, something different happens. Our theology needs to get turned into biography. Because rather than simply believing in the resurrection, it's more important that we would experience Jesus in all of his resurrection power. And that, that was so hard for Thomas because he was a tough, no-nonsense, nuts-and-bolts kind of guy who marched to his own drumbeat. And you probably wouldn't invite Thomas over your house to watch a baseball game with you, but you'd better take him along with you when you go to buy a used car because he asks all the right questions. And that's why Thomas is so valuable to you and me on Easter morning. Because in the single most difficult to believe event in all of human history, we have someone before us who's not simply gonna belt out a few Easter hymns based on a few rumors. We have someone who says either you're gonna talk to me through my fingertips or not at all. We have someone who says either my Lord is risen and alive or he's dead and buried, it's all or nothing. And so we have at the resurrection our very own CNN correspondent on location in Jerusalem. Well, what were the results of Thomas' investigation? It says in John chapter 20, verse 26, a week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. I have to wonder how hard it was for Thomas to have to hang around all those believing disciples for that whole week while he was still in that unbelieving mode. You think that may have created some tension amongst the other guys. Now, I don't know all of you here today. I certainly don't know all who are watching online, but you may have come to be part of this worship service on this glorious Easter morning and you have doubts, you have doubts about the resurrection. And so maybe there's a little bit of doubting Thomas inside of you. And what I wanna to say to you is that's okay, because you're here, and at least you're open to new data. And I believe like Thomas, you are a miracle of God waiting to happen, because brace yourself for what happens next. It says, although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Try for a minute to imagine the look on Thomas's face. And then Thomas hears parroted back to him his own words. Jesus says, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Go ahead, Thomas. Run your battery of medical tests on me. Height, weight, blood pressure, temperature. Give me an MRI. It's me standing here before you. And so what does Thomas do? Does he pull out a magnifying glass? Well, it appears that the nail marks are genuine. Does he say, I'm going to need some of your DNA and, and, and run it through the lab? Does he check Jesus' carotid artery for a pulse? No, he doesn't do any of those things. Instead, he cries out, my Lord and my God. So Thomas rockets out of the depth of despair right into the elation of Easter. His life goes from doubt to delight, from heartbreak to daybreak, right there in front of Jesus Christ. And he goes further than anyone had gone in history. No one had ever called Jesus God before. But crusty, old, pragmatic, pessimistic Thomas looks into the face of the risen Christ for the very first time and he says my Lord and my God 
Well, still, Jesus has some important words for Thomas, and I think for you and me too. He says, Thomas, you only believe because you see. Thomas, this is sort of unusual and irregular in me coming to you in this way. And then Jesus kind of gives his grand benediction for those of us who rise to faith without the benefit of physical evidence. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And so friends, you and I are at a higher level of faith than that of Thomas because we walk by faith and not by sight. We live in the 21st century, not the first century. We have evidence at our fingertips that Thomas never had. So let me share with you some of those key pieces of evidence. One is the historical record that is available to us. That there was this Jewish itinerant rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth who was executed in the year around 30 AD in the Roman occupied province of Palestine is a matter beyond historical dispute. We also know that there was this new religious movement that broke out and it spread quickly throughout the land. And we know that within about 30 years, large numbers of the Jewish priesthood also became believers. Even the city of Rome was significantly impacted, as well as Ephesus, Antioch, Alexandria, and other major cities. Something happened. What was it? What the core of this movement were a group of sane, intelligent, hardworking men called the disciples who said that it all happened because of the bodily resurrection of their leader. And these disciples, as you know, all died terrible, ugly, brutal deaths for saying this. All of them were in a position to know if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. Any one of them could have blown the whistle and said, it's all just one big cover-up. So answer this question for me. Would you be willing to die for something that you knew was patently untrue? My guess is probably not. And neither would I, by the way. So how do we explain that a bunch of scattered quitters came together to launch a movement the likes the world has never seen and that that movement stretches through 21 centuries to touch you and me in this room today? How is it that a group of disciples who lobbied for a better seat next to Jesus at the Last Supper would become leaders of a community known for its sacrificial giving? What caused Peter to go from being the selfish coward who denied his Lord not once, not twice, but three times, only to come back and challenge that religious establishment? How did Paul, the Apostle Paul, go from being this nasty terrorist who persecuted Christians in the church, how did he go from being that to the world's expert on the subject of love? According to tradition, Thomas later became a missionary to India, and he died a martyr's death when he was run through by the spears of four soldiers. How ironic, since Thomas's faith came alive when he saw the spear mark in Jesus' side. There's a second piece of evidence that I want to share with you. It's from the first scripture reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. There were hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus alive. Now, scholars believe that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians around 55 AD. He lists the eyewitnesses, Peter, James, the apostles. Paul also sticks his own name in there. And he says, 500 people, think about it, 500 people saw the risen Christ at one time. 
And he lists them saying most of them are still alive. And so these verses that I read for you earlier from 1 Corinthians 15 make up one of the most important documents of the Christian church because in essence, Paul is saying, these people are still alive. Go talk to them. You don't have to take my word for it. Listen to what they have to say. Listen to what they experienced. Now, if I were to go around the room today and ask what difference the resurrection of Jesus Christ has made in your life, I bet we would have as many stories as there are people. And friends, that is the best argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sure, there was an empty tomb. Yes, there were resurrection appearances and sightings. But the most irrefutable argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fact that people's lives were changed. People's lives were forever changed. So we have evidences that Thomas never dreamed of. I guess what I'm saying is to believe in the resurrection is not some blind leap of faith across the Grand Canyon in the middle of the night. It is a step of faith. The evidence will only take you so far. To have Easter faith becomes a matter of the heart. <laughs> it's the difference between, ah, you know, that's an interesting possibility, to my Lord and my God. So go ahead, Thomas, examine all the evidence but it's evidence that demands a verdict. And the promise of Thomas is that you can be the most dejected and discouraged person in this room right now or watching wherever you may be, and you can leave here the most exuberant disciple of Jesus Christ. Take that step this Easter and cry out, my Lord and my God. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for the empty tomb because, Lord, without the resurrection, there's no gospel, there's no church, there's no trumpets, no lilies, no choir, no pulpit, no future beyond the grave. But, God, you lead us into a mystery this morning that staggers the imagination. The tomb is empty. Jesus Christ is alive, and we are forever new. God, we pray that the living Christ be more than just our creed, but that he would be our comfort and our confidence. We pray that for us, Easter would not be just some kind of yellowed headline in the scrapbook of history, but the present victory over all of our struggles and challenges. That because he lives, we live, and yet not we, but Christ lives in us. God, we pray with Easter confidence for the needs right here in this room and for those who are watching wherever they may be. We pray for those whose health is failing. We pray for families where there are problems and issues. We pray for those who doubt and whose faith hangs by a single thread. We pray that you would give to all of us that thing that we most need from you. Lord, we pray for the world that is in desperate need of resurrection hope. For the world you so love that you sent your son to die. And so, God, on this day, we pray for the witness of your church worldwide on this joyful resurrection morning. And that the good news of Christ's resurrection would bring hope, joy, renewal, 
and faith to this doubting and disbelieving world. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen and reigning Savior and Lord. Amen.